0: wanted to ask us to really sort of think through pretty broadly, where are we in terms of racial literacy in schools, in terms of racial justice in education, and where do we need to be?
1: Well, I think that we have so much work to do, and I think that this political climate has just made it more apparent by how tentative and reluctant and resistant so many people are to talk about white supremacy to talk yeah. about anti-blackness yes. to even use that language. And so my experience is that if we cannot even give voice to those terms, right? Then I don't know what's happening in schools then to really push Mm -hmm. that conversation. And then what happens is that you have a few teachers who sort of speak up on those issues and then they're vilified and they're really trying to make substantive change. I mean, I think in terms of having those conversations about racial literacy, we need to be talking about them now more than ever. I'm just not so confident that it's happening in any sort of systemic way beyond Pockets of educators who are really sticking their neck out to do what's right.
0: And I agree with you, Kim. And from my experience, what I'm continuing to see is this sort of laser focus on these cosmetic fixes in the classroom where it looks like schools are sprinkling in some multicultural books or maybe they're designing a social justice unit And then that's it, Mm. where the laser focus really needs to be on what you were just saying, dismantling racism in the institution of education Mm. and building it up to be one where it's throughout the fabric of a district's policies, Mm. its procedures which would look like things like ongoing professional development that teachers don't get to opt out on and you know hiring practices where there's an intention to hire and retain teachers of color and creating spaces that really enable them to thrive such as affinity groups and networking with other teachers of color and Things that I'm not really seeing happening systemically, but we keep focusing on the classroom and and teachers who are opting into doing this work and allowing others to opt out. Is that what you're seeing, Tiana and and Tricia?
2: I would agree. I feel like there's these pockets, like what Kim was saying, these pockets of educators who are doing the work, they're on the forefront of it. And districts are investing a ton of money on curriculum when it's not really curriculum. It's a a way of being, it's a mindset, it's, it's, it's a way of life. It's a way of teaching. And these cosmetic shifts that you spoke about where it's books or like being more conscious of what's being privileged, uh, visually privileged in classrooms. And really what it is, it's a, a total shift in school practices that needs to occur to be able to dismantle this. And not just the one actionable step of, oh, this year, I hate to say it, like, I'm sure there's leaders out there that have said this, oh, I hired a teacher of color. Or, oh, I sent my staff to this PD, we're getting closer. I mean, there has to be more a more um, really active stance of an everyday idea and thinking and being as, a, a, as an educator that's in it for racial equity and liberation.
0: Trisha, how about you?
2: Yeah, I would agree with Tiana and Kim. I
3: think that the problem is that districts too often try to do these, like we said, cosmetic changes, things that feel concrete, like changing some books around or having a unit here or there. But the bottom line is, unless you can shift the teachers in the room and until you can have intentional deep reflection and have teachers who were educated in a racist system. So to some extent, maybe they don't know any better, but you know, there's Google. Um, (laughs) I think that until there's that internal shifting, until the people do that internal work, I, I just don't know because you can have quote unquote diverse curriculum, but it can be delivered in harmful ways really harmful ways. Yes. And that's what I worry about because I think too often we want to um, latch on to these technical solutions, a quick fix, something that looks nice on the outside and might be nice on a pamphlet. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that, you know, racism has been part of the fabric of this country and it's not going to be a technical solution. It's going to require, like Kim said, a dismantling, a restructuring, a real come to terms kind of moment. For everybody. And there's, there's there's a lot of resistance. There are many people who are invested in the system because it works for them.
0: Right. I agree, Tricia. And, you know, you were just talking about quick fixes in it. I'm thinking about that sort of approach, particularly in the school district that I spent the majority of my career in. And I'm wondering if we all have this in common. Are we all or have we all predominantly been working in white educational spaces, meaning teachers and kids? Is that the sort of environment we we each are in now?
1: Up until recently, I have primarily spent my teaching career in urban schools with kids of color,
0: and so and now now not not so much.
1: No, now um, pre service teachers who are mostly white.
0: And in terms of the quick fixes, I feel like I'm seeing that a lot, where teachers they want to skip that sort of work that Trisha and Tiana. Um, that you were just talking about, that really reflective get in there and recognize that I have been raised in this racist educational system in a racist country, and I need to get in there and do some, some dismantling of my own thoughts. And instead, they want the binder. And I keep saying to teachers, no, you have to do the work, and then you become the binder. You are the binder that you're looking for once you get in there and do that work. So I'm wondering if we can, since we are in these spaces that are predominantly white teachers, white students, I think that brings a very specific dynamic. And I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about the particular challenges in these spaces and what it feels like for us each day there and the issues that we've experienced around making racial justice work a priority. I'll say for my part, as one of the few African-American educators in the district I was working at in K-12, through 12. and for a long time I was the only. Certainly what brings to mind to me is this, this idea of being a warm demander that um, Judith Kleinfeld and James Vasquez and Lisa Del Pitt and Gloria Ladson-Billings have talked about, just the ways in which teachers from racially and culturally diverse backgrounds how they instruct in ways that are different from their white colleagues and the perceptions that I got from my white colleagues and sometimes teachers and students is, oh, Mrs. Cherry Paul, she's edgy, she's intimidating and just sort of, you know, feeling very alone in the way in which I existed in in this district. So I'm wondering if you can also speak to the challenges for teachers of color working in predominantly white educational spaces.
1: Sure. I mean, I think that what I have found really powerful is when you find one or two other teachers of color to teach with um, who are on the same wavelength and who want to push for equity in ways that you think will actually most directly benefit kids, then you can do amazing things. And also you can distribute the tremendous emotional labor that the work requires. It just does. And I think there's also emotional labor that's exacted from people who might look like you, but don't necessarily support those efforts, who are very comfortable essentially seeing kids underserved every day and still getting a paycheck. I feel like this work, sort of the work really for decolonizing and disrupting is lonely work because you're not, you're just simply not going to be doing what everyone else is doing. And so finding at least someone, and I think that social media and the internet workshops and conferences at least allow the possibility of a community. But I know that you cannot do the work by yourself. You just can't.
0: I think what you were saying about the importance of social media brings me to the work that you and Tricia and your other colleagues have been doing with Disrupt Texts. And I have so appreciated the way in which you are working alongside so many educators, many of whom might be feeling lonely, but then they have this really rich platform to go to and see, oh, you know, there are other people here who, like me, are trying to do this work. So I'm wondering if you can talk about Disrupt Text, what brought you to this work and what exactly is the work that you are doing?
3: I think the work really came out of just some conversations, some conversations that Kim and I had been having for a while that had come out of our group as Heinemann Fellows. And just thinking about curriculum and thinking about the ways in which um, we're high school English teachers and the ways in which the canon has really been a tool for maintaining a status quo for mm-hmm. promoting certain voices over others and This realization on my part I think Kim came to the realization much earlier than me about how really it, in some not I don't want to say arbitrary the canon is but constructed right? Constructed with a purpose. And so we decided that we would think about how could we disrupt that? How could we bring in different voices, voices that everyone should know. It should not take a student until they are in college and seeking out a multicultural literature class where they finally read James Baldwin. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's unfortunately, again, because teachers are products of the system, teachers only know what they know and what they've been trained to know with the biases they have about certain texts. And so we thought, what if we can just give teachers a platform and a way to think about, because there are teachers who are doing this work everywhere, Mm -hmm. teachers of color and some white teachers. Right. And how can we give them a platform to share the ways that they are subverting dominant narratives and bringing in non-dominant perspectives that have for too long been ignored.
0: I so enjoy going to your, your slow chat and just reading what folks are thinking about and the work that they're doing. And I'm also wondering how might you advise educators to wanna to apply the work that you're doing, which I think primarily focuses on high school texts or traditionally high school texts. How might some educators apply this work to disrupting the literary canon that exists at the elementary and the middle school levels is is there a disrupt text chat coming up for that
3: well there needs to be <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. having my having my own children going through elementary school and now into middle school certainly it's required and I think the principals are the same right like who are the voices that we keep listening to over and over again I don't want to say the teachers don't have control over their curriculum but there's more leeway than they probably they, there's more leeway there. There just is. <laughs> you can be creative. And I think your read-alouds don't have to be the same read-alouds you had when you were in school that you loved because your kids are different and need right. something else. I'm sure Tiana can speak to that. <laughs> right. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so important. Again, with my child too, it's like what what books are representing his identity and my daughter's identity. But I think as a fifth grade teacher, just swapping the books out and questioning what's recommended. I mean, we have to be doing that. I think about how writing has changed because we didn't use the highly recommended Every Living Thing by Cynthia Riley this year. We used Jason Reynolds' ghost to study his craft and parts and what kind of doors that opened up for my students. And then when we were studying poetry, like Nikki Grimes was all over the place and just seeing how children were um, incredibly engaged and like committed to their writing and committed to trying to work their writing like these authors. And that's something I hadn't ever seen before as a writing teacher and parents were noticing the difference. Parents commented and said that the literature was one of the things that they took note of the most during the school year that offered their white Irish child a perspective that they were, have never ever had elsewise. So right. it is so important from our little ones all the way up to uh, our young adults. Right. I think Tiana makes
3: a really excellent point. I think we, we always talk about, you know, Dr. Bishop's mirrors and windows. And, you know, I teach in a predominantly white school of the population is white. And I think it is just as important to expose white children, white students to the rich legacies, literary legacies of people of color. And I always go back to this quote from Kwame Alexander at ILA, and it was quoted in his New York Times piece, but the the mind of the adult starts in the imagination of the child, right? Mm. And if we're not giving kids opportunities to understand, empathize and see the rich complexities of different people, then we're going to keep getting the same thing.
0: Yeah. And thank you for saying that, Trisha. because, you know, a lot of my work is focused on thinking about, you know, these issues in predominantly white educational spaces. And for a long time, you know, I, I feel like I've been made to feel by some professors that the work isn't as important as work with kids in urban schools and in urban environments. And I think it's so important for us to be thinking about how teachers in these spaces take up this work. How do they develop and then implement, you know, curriculum with students that addresses race and racism? What are the issues that come up that are a barrier to this work? And which of these barriers, you know, are surmountable and which feel insurmountable? and why, and, and what are some of the breakthroughs and how this work can really guide all educators and schools in making this work a priority for students. So I'm happy to hear you say that.
1: But you know what, there was a point in time where I did, um, I taught in a predominantly white school for a couple of years. And I am pretty sure that I was probably one of if not the only black teacher many of those white young folks were ever going to have that matters to them yes right and so i'm always profoundly moved when i run into those now they're grown adults mm-hmm. and they will talk about the fact that we talked about race we talked mm-hmm. about racism we talked about whiteness we did all of those things while also developing a love for literacy and reading and writing and all of those other things in a way that moved them right continue to act and so I mean I think the fight is wherever the fight is right so wherever I am is wherever like I'm going to be in that moment I think that's what's really important is that these places kids need teachers to speak up and kids need to see teachers of color you know being excellent out here being excellent all day because many of us are and so yes. what are the situations that support teachers of color? And then also, given that 80% and an increasing um, mm-hmm. number of teachers are white, mm-hmm. what can we do to really have the conversations that move people to action? I mean, I'm amazed by, I mean, Trisha and Tiana are probably much more patient than I am because, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I'm just impatient. You can ask them. I mean, Trisha, you talk about, what is it, like the 80%, if you can move whatever that metric is that we talked about and that um, we have to believe, and this is where I'm heartened by my colleagues because uh, that's also the importance of the work is that you have a group of folks who say, you know, but people are moving and you work with the population of people in a school or in a department or example who are willing to try. And I think what's right. really powerful and what I've encouraged Trisha to do is that she's a department head and she's moving her faculty to try things, they're like throwing out their stuff and they're reading things and they wanna talk about it. And it's not just like, this just happened one day. It's because there's something going on in that environment that Tricia Mm -hmm. is nurturing and encouraging that those teachers might just do something different. And those kids might just be moved. And so that's where we need to focus our time and energy. What's going on in those spaces? Why is Tiana able to move these children in ways that are really powerful? Like everyone's Mm -hmm. out here talking craziness, but really the really important work of changing the hearts and minds of children and educators is happening. We're just not paying attention.
0: And what's frustrating Kim too, is that we keep, being bombarded with research that says this work matters it's important <laughs> it's making a difference and all kids benefit from having teachers of color particularly black teachers not just for black kids but for white kids too and you know every day there just seems to be some new study and some you know research that we can like you know wrap our our hands around and say hey we have all of this to draw from so it's encouraging to hear that this progress is happening in your school, Trisha, and I really hope that, that other educators who are not just educators of color, but all educators who are warriors in this work can stay the course. And I want to talk a little bit about the work Tiana's doing in Writing Workshop. Mm-hmm. And we were chatting recently and Tiana said that Writing Workshop is about creating a space where students can be heard not necessarily always understood. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a bit and talk about the work you've been doing around writing and trauma and the difference that work makes in the lives of students from racially and culturally diverse backgrounds and what educators can do to mitigate their or their school leaders' anxieties and concerns about students sharing too much or... Mm -hmm you know, what do I do with this content? Is it inappropriate for school? And how they can just really keep the focus on their students. So if you could just talk about that, Tiana.
2: Yeah, um, I, I feel like writing is that place in a, in a classroom where, where you can build this intense sense of community. It's a place where strangers can come together and find common threads that they may have not known about. I think every individual's experience can be different in writing. And I think about a student that I once had, and I had him for two years, and basically it appeared that writing kind of transformed his his self. He said to me, he's like, I can do this thing. Writing, I have something to say, Miss Tiana, to the world, and the world needs to hear it. And when I first met the student, he wouldn't even speak. And with 25% of our children and adolescents facing some type of trauma throughout their lives, writing is critical for students to have, to affirm who they are, to be able to have not only develop their oral and written expression, but their emotional expression too. A child should never be forced to write about a particular topic or an experience they had. What a child chooses to write about depends on how the community of writers is cultivated and nurtured. I do think that writing is this place to disrupt oppressive systems. And I think it's, that way because I think writing has been driven by the white dominant narrative for, forever. And what are teachers doing, even in the elementary section of our education to really push the methods and the resources and the supports that students are in the students' hands and basically ask that question, whose voice is being privileged here? And how do I disrupt those methods and materials that represent a type of power and control? and bring in who the student is, wholly the student is. Students are amazing, they're intelligent, they bring so much to the table, and often that is completely boxed in because of this dominant narrative. And I I hear that students, uh, oh, they're not writing like this. Well, they're not writing like how you envision them writing because you're boxing them in. You're doing it under your narrative, your story, the way you learned how to write. I think about also Elizabeth Acevedo's novel, Poet X, the Poet X, right? Amazing work. And this kind of resonates with me. She said, late into the night, I write and the pages of my notebook swell from all the words I pressed onto them. It almost feels like the more I bruise the page, the quicker something inside me heals. And as an elementary school teacher, I just hope that writing, I don't even want to say workshop anymore because I don't like the, the term workshop, but writing studio, just writing in general, is a place for kids to be themselves, present themselves, and bruise those pages with whatever it is, whether it be uh, working through something emotional or really trying to get someone's attention to change the world.
0: And as you were talking about, you know, just the teaching of writing also being, can be uh, an oppressive system for our students, I'm just thinking about a thread throughout our conversation is just the importance of teachers, all teachers, teachers of reading, teachers of writing, all teachers then the, the, it's essential for them to confront their own biases in order to teach well.
1: Yeah. And I think it all stems from what we think we know, like sort mm-hmm. of what are the taken for granted notions. If we assume that children are coming to us with no funds of knowledge or anything uh, of value, then of course, right. They need formulas and everything else without failing to understand that in terms of, for example, Black folks in this country, we have always been literate. We have always valued literacy. Um, we have always found ways to be literate. And mm-hmm. so, I think it does come back to teachers and other educators thinking about why do they believe that, right? And then really working hard to find the counter narratives that disprove those notions,
2: right? right. And
1: then sort of once you then begin to do that work of decolonizing your mind and what you thought you know, then you can really start to think about practice. But as you Mm -hmm. said, Sonia, until I think people start to think really hard about why do we think these things? How did we get here? And why am I still perpetuating racism and white supremacy in my classroom? And again, it's not just white teachers who are doing this. Teachers of color do it too. Yes. Right. And so what does it mean to really think differently and to do differently? Because that's what we really have to do is that, yeah, we know, as you said, we know all the things we need to know to improve the outcomes for kids. Yet we choose not to. And that's the problem. Yeah. I want to talk
0: about, again, the importance of how we practice self-care. As we started off with this conversation, talking about this work being um, emotionally heavy and just difficult sometimes, if not all the time, Um, I think it's important for so many educators of color to really continue to have this be a part of the conversation. How are we practicing self-care so that we can continue to be the warriors that we are in education, that we're we're persisting, that we are, hopefully there will be longevity in the field for us. I don't see that happening without self-care. So could you all talk a little bit about it? I know Tiana hinted at it earlier, but maybe one way that you guys practice self-care is your text group where you communicate and check in with one another. What are some other ways that educators can practice, particularly educators of color can practice self-care?
2: Well, Kim is always advocating and suggesting how we take care of ourselves. But I think one of the huge elements has been our, our, our group. We're in all different places across the country in different time zones, and it's a safe space. And there's not too many safe spaces in this world of, hey, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I need from the serious to, hey, what's for dinner? And being a little, <laughs> <habit>. <laughs> you know, that's right. <laughs> but I mean, self-care, that's my self-care is just being able to like smile and grow from our little group. Yes. And also like making sure that we're physically fit for this work. Our bodies and our minds are centered because it can take a physical toll on us. And I feel like, At least this summer of just recharging mentally, but also getting ready physically for whatever this year is going to bring because who knows what's going to happen. I mean, it's unpredictable what we're going to have to get ready for. So that all has to be aligned. I mean,
1: I think that this game, we are playing a long game. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to... I love the way that we celebrate each other. And even if that's like someone knocking out X number of words on a day or mm-hmm. submitting a proposal to someone or to, to an editor, or I don't know, teaching a great lesson even, right? Yes. Like I think we all celebrate those victories, big or small, like they are our own. Right. And it's nice to see that and to be in a community too. I value it because it's women of color. And I think that it's really easy to not give women of color our due. Honestly, that's my lived reality. And so it's powerful. It's powerful to one say, hey, you all are awesome. We're in this group. And two, also to talk about things that had happened and for the group to reflect those experiences back to say, I hear you. I see you. You are not wrong. Nope. You're not crazy. All those things matter because like, you know, you could be like out here walking in the world and they're going to tell us that that's not the case. And so also I'm really not interested in being anyone's martyr. I mean, maybe like 20 years ago, that was really cool, but I'm not interested in it. And I'm actually also not interested in doing the work by myself, which is another big change for me from when I first started teaching Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't have to be lonely if you really work hard to curate and cultivate your networks and pay attention to them and let them thrive and flourish. And that's what has sustained me, honestly, is that mm. there's a group of people who will show up every day for you and right. that's what it takes. I mean, I think that educators of color in particular need that. And they also need people who are going to call them out yes. because this group will and then my other friend who we used to teach together and we are still very good friends. We'll do that, right? Like it can't just be all celebrations, but it can be, you were supposed to get that draft in and why right. didn't you do that? And really you're not doing your thing. And right. so it's this nice balance of support and accountability and a thousand group uh, messages a day that really <laughs> keep me going.
3: Yeah, no, I just, I also think, you know, I think about in listening to Tiana and Kim talk, I think about how fortunate and lucky we are and how this experience, and knowing them just in the brief time that I've known them has been a gift, a real gift. And it makes me sad to think that they're, to think about all the teachers out there who don't have that and to think how lonely I was and I didn't realize it before, you know? And, I, and there are still so many teachers who need those support systems and who need those groups. And like Kim said, to try to find those networks and to cultivate them. And, you know, power works by isolating. So I think, and especially in these predominantly white spaces where you might be the only teacher of color in your school, in your department, is to try to seek out people, try to find opportunities, whether if it's in your building district, like we are starting a teachers of color coalition group in my district, which I'm really looking forward to, but even to go outside, you know, Kim has taught me that the power of local communities, right? To reach out to other people, and to, of course, reach out through social media because people are out there. They're looking for connection the way you are. And I think that, you know, Val Brown of Teaching Tolerance and Good Friend now, she has this great quote pinned on the top of her Twitter, which is, you know, something to the effect of what the bad guys are afraid of most are unity. <laughs> yes. So I think trying yeah. to find those people to unify yourselves around, find that That safe space, that empower, not even safe, empowering space is the key. And to not let anyone convince you that you don't need it.
0: (laughs) Right. I wanted to ask, basically, how do you all get so fierce? (laughs) Like literally, (laughs) I know that sounds funny, but I work with a lot of educators of color who feel Silenced and they feel powerless. And I think it might be helpful for people to hear what's driving you, what's compelling us to really persist. And, you know, when I think about that, I think about being inspired by my parents, particularly my dad and his experiences growing up in the segregated South and just never wanting to take for granted the struggles and the sacrifices that he endured. And I also think about my daughter, who, even though she's an adult, I look out at the world and I think every day, oh my gosh, how can I make this better? How can I make this a little bit better so that she can face less obstacles than I have? And that sort of propels me to keep going. So I, I was just wondering, you know, I'm, I'm talking to these fierce women. How'd you get like that? How can, how can you help others grow their fierceness?
1: have a cape somewhere I mean I you know Trisha and I go around about this when I told her I was not always like this I mean when I first started teaching I was at a charter school I was really into the rules and all of the conformity (laughs) and everything I was like down for demerits and I was into giving kids things to read it was my choice control choice like and so all of that is to say is that For me, I wasn't just, as I told Trisha, I wasn't just born woke. Right. So it's been a process of realizing that freedom is really what we are after for kids. All Mm -hmm. kids deserve to be free. Mm -hmm. And I want to be a teacher that nurtures their freedom, particularly for kids of color. They probably have had, they want to be free. But um, I think school structures do such a terrible job of promoting their freedom. And so once I realized that, then my job is really to make them literate, free citizens of the world, mm. that changed my approach to teaching. Mm. And then I, I think the most profound change for me came when um, Dr. Teresa Perry, who has been my mentor for many years, reminded me of the historical tradition of Black teachers. And Vanessa Siddle Walker, who writes yes. about all of the subversive work black teachers did during desegregation and before desegregation and also Carter G Woodson's work with teachers and documenting teachers just reminds me that in terms of locating myself right i'm just another teacher in a long line of black teachers who have always fought for what's right for kids of color and so i don't think of myself as exceptional i don't think of myself as special mm-hmm. i just think that this is the work right that i'm i'm supposed to be doing and these are the people that i'm supposed to be supporting and these are the people who are supposed to have my back and so you know when it's over and done with someone else will pick it up or they should right right? and i think that's what is most important to me is that the work continues and it's a movement right this is my moment in the movement and Mm -hmm. when i'm done i'm done and someone else will pick it up and it'll be their turn
3: you know i think I sometimes joke about this, but I think it's sort of true that the second half of my teaching career is like this like period of atonement <laughs> for the front teaching <laughs> career. Like I'm like this idea that I think I've come in my own racial literacy journey to understand and see things much clearer, and I'm still learning every day. And I think because I understand, all the unpacking that I've had to do for myself. I just don't want kids to have to wait until they're my age to have to do this unpacking or to be, mm-hmm. to see with clarity what the world is really like. I'm like, I just think they can do better. And that, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I think I can um, change my practices so that I'm not just perpetuating the same outcome over and over again. And I think very, and personally, my kids, you know, I think just my own children and thinking about them without trying to project too much onto them, you know, our experiences are different, but I also know that I want to create a world that is going to be better for them. That means helping by the students I have. So this is the selfish thing. I want the students I have to be the mm-hmm. types of people that I want my kids to feel safe and loved by.
2: I don't think I've ever been a rule follower, maybe in some (laughs) aspects of life, like not sneaking out of the house when I was young, maybe But (laughs) like when it came to like my work, I I don't think I've ever been a rule follower, but I think most recently in the past four years, I've become more vocal and feeling, yes, I'm going to take action and be more, more vocal about this. I think the drive, it's personal. You and Sonia, you and I spoke about this. This is personal. I I exist because a teacher was awoke in the 60s with my parents. And young lives are at stake here. And we we are in such privileged positions being teachers because we have the chance, we have the opportunity to really, really just cultivate the world that children are living in and I don't want lives lost anymore. I don't, I don't. My children are of color. I want them growing up in a safe, aware, compassionate world and that's the drive there. And for others to start to understand what it's been like and where we're going, but it's life or death. And I hate to be that dramatic about it, but it is. And this is all about liberty and what does liberty really mean?